0: The year is 1976, and the world's most famous boxer steps into the ring against Japan's most celebrated wrestler. The book is called Ali vs. Anoki, and it set off a legacy that nobody could even imagine. We're here with the author. We're going 15 rounds with him right here on Book Circle Online. This is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. Bookworms, and in this case, Fight Fans, welcome to Book Circle Online. My name is Jay Tan. I'm available all over social media at JayTan716. And uh, as I said, the book we're talking about here is Ali versus Enoki, Muhammad Ali versus Antonio Enoki in one of the most bizarre uh, matches that anybody could imagine. It was Boxer versus Wrestler, one of the earliest uh, mixed matches and a predecessor to mixed martial arts. I'm here with the author, Josh Gross. Uh, long-time publisher, writer, excuse me, pioneer in MMA journalism, writer for uh, sport, um, SureDog.com, editor-in-chief there, Sports Illustrated, ESPN, now The Guardian and Deadspin. Josh, welcome and congratulations on this book. Thanks, Jay. It's great to be with you, man. I really this, appreciate it. This is uh, really an amazing story. There is so much to, to digest and to and to present here. I'm almost not sure where to start, but... Here's a quick checklist, uh, and I want to get your take on, on the biggest the biggest relevance, I think. Um, boxer versus wrestler. In mm-hmm. the world of combat sports, obviously that's a huge thing. Mm-hmm. This was pro wrestling and boxing. Was it a work, a fake match, choreographed ending, or was it a shoot, a real match, as was boxing, uh, judo, karate, mm-hmm. all that stuff? Um, it's a predecessor to mixed martial arts, as we know it, which of course has been your career covering sure. it for 15 years at least 16 now 16 years yeah, yeah count it guys um there was it was japan versus the u.s this was something that i think captured captured the imagination of a lot of people it was huge at the time broadcast in uh in japan and then closed circuit at multiple different multiple locations throughout the u.s yeah and globally yeah, globally mm-hmm. as the main event of wrestling cards that were happening, at least in the U.S., were, were those also globally? Do you know? No, I mean
1: okay. the, the Ali and match was the global showcase, really. right? Yeah, and then throughout the U.S., there was a pro wrestling industry came together for a, sort of an amazing night of action, and, mm-hmm. um, it, and in Shea Stadium, I think uh, thirty-three thousand people came out to watch the close circuit of this. Uh, on top of that, Andre the Giant. We all know Andre the Giant uh, mm-hmm. took on a boxer, uh, Chuck Weppner, who fought Ali. He was the inspiration for Rocky Balboa. Mm-hmm. They okay. had
0: they had a the pro wrestling match, but that was a lead into this uh, Ali and Oki contest. The fact that you got thirty three thousand people at Shea Stadium. Yeah. Um, there is some elections that you don't get thirty three thousand people coming <laughs> sadly, out. Sadly enough, no. For yes, for for better or for worse, depending on who wins. Yes. Putting that aside, so to that end, and and the match itself being. Um, Well, let's put it out there. The match itself was kind of a flop. Fair to say? That's how it's remembered. Um, Uh Certainly in in Ali's legacy,
1: it's not fondly remembered. The media that was covering him extensively at the time, the boxing press especially, hated it. Mm -hmm. Um, They considered the whole concept uh, a farce. They didn't know what he was doing. as Muhammad Ali, the most famous man on the planet. Mm -hmm. and He's going off to Japan and taking this guy, Antonio Inoki, eight months after the thrill in Manila. Like Mm -hmm. this doesn't add up to them. Uh, They thought he was uh, really hurting boxing. He had to defend himself. He had to defend boxing. He had to defend this idea that he wanted to uh, participate in this contest. To him, he saw the broader legacy. I think Ali understood the history uh, of these kinds of matches, and he really wanted
0: to test himself in a different arena. So to that end, I mean, it's it's a fascinating story unto itself for its time. Um, But then we also have the relevance of it being... A, uh, an ancestor, really, to to MMA. Sure. Uh, what's the biggest legacy of this match?
1: Yeah. Well, previously, um, I think people have felt like it's again, sort of a, the biggest legacy was that it wasn't a legacy. It was a dud. It was a, a mm-hmm. low point in Muhammad Ali's career. I mm-hmm. think that's incorrect. I think 40 years after the fact now, we've seen this mixed martial arts business become global. Mm-hmm. People are so used to these kinds of contests. Mixed martial arts is on par with boxing at the very least. Mm-hmm. Some people feel as if it's surpassed boxing uh, throughout the world. And this contest really... Through this contest, not only do I tell the story of this match, which you're right, the match itself—it's not a rocky story. It's not one of great Ali, one of all these great contests. Mm-hmm. But the match itself has such an important legacy that people fail to realize because they dismissed it as something that wasn't important. Mm-hmm. Through this match, you can trace the history of combat sports as we know it today, especially yeah. professional mixed martial arts. No question that its legacy is tied to this contest. Uh, in Japan, you can't untie pro wrestling and combat sports. Mm-hmm. And its uh, legacy here is, is well established, especially with the partition, participation of someone like Antonio Noki, who, it, you know, Ali was the guy that got the marquee, right? But Antonio Noki... Uh, is the most famous man in Japan. Mm-hmm. Literally today, he's 73 years old, still has the most recognizable face in Japan. He's a politician today. So it looks like a Japanese Jay Leno, right? Yeah, he's got this giant <laughs> chin. I mean, uh, you chin. know, Ali uh, coined the, he called him the pelican. I mean, it was like, you know, it was, it was. he had this really kind of unique uh, persona and ability about him mm-hmm. uh, and his legacy in the combat sports space is really important and unique. So these kinds of matches, Jay, you know, boxer versus grappler, The pro wrestling business and the fight business, Mm -hmm. they were always intertwined. Mm -hmm. And I, through this match, tell the story of that, tell the history and the story arc of, you know, for thousands of years, human beings have been doing these mixed kinds of fights, right? right? And in our era, right, after the 20th century, you know, we saw catch wrestling, which was competition, which mm-hmm. was a form of uh, competition in the wrestling world. that Grappling with submission grappling holds. Grappling with submission holds was a legitimate sport that people came out to watch and it was entertaining and you had crowds sitting there in the tens of thousands uh, watching four-hour contests and were captivated by it. And this happened all over the world. Mm-hmm. This happened in the streets of Paris and this happened in dusty towns in uh, America and this happened everywhere else. Out of that rose the pro wrestling business. And out of that you start to see this sort of lineage really take place and I think it really culminates in this night.
0: It, uh, I, fair to say, um, it certainly is chock full of, uh, of, of, of history. This is not, the guys, this is not just a, a story about a moment in sports history, but it's, it's practically a reference book unto itself. Like Josh is saying, the history, um, you you cover the history of grappling and the way that it leads to pro wrestling. That's a part that I think is, is fascinating. I think another thing that's going to be talked about, about this book is, um, the difference in time, not mm. only the comparisons between Ali and Inoki, uh, culture, works versus shoots, but time, because now you uh, the after Buzz staff here. Tons of them are, are huge WWE fans, mm-hmm. but when you talk with them, you hear them say, you know, old school wrestling, like Hulk Hogan, right, right. No, old school wrestling goes farther back, guys. We're talking Jumble, uh, Jungle Jim Londos, Lou um, says before that Farmer Burns, sure. Okay, and this this was grappling the, the four hour the four hour matches that you're talking about. Um, to that end, I, I guess maybe then there is that through line of combat sports through pro wrestling and even uh, through into MMA as we know it. What would be, for people that aren't familiar with this, because I think... um, There's a lot of people who are not familiar with it. With the match, yeah. well, Well, yeah, the fact that Ali
1: participated in something at the height of his career, and a lot of people have no idea that he did it, was really interesting to me. Yes. And I wanted to explore that idea that, how is that possible? Mm-hmm. Uh, part how did of it, he
0: get away behind the, the trash dumpster, proverbially, well, look, right? I mean,
1: part of it was the fact that the media hated it, and they assigned it a certain, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't, they didn't understand, a lot of them didn't understand this legacy that This history that came up to the match, that that built Mm -hmm. up to the match, you know, Mm -hmm. the fact that in the 1920s Jack Dempsey, one of the greatest heavyweight boxers of all time, was being chased by Ed Strangler Lewis, who was the number one wrestler in America at the time, and they got so much ink in the in the newspapers, and you know they were talking about rules and really sort of. You know these things have happened, mm-hmm. um, and then Ali participated in that. And there's an important legacy there to be known, and yet people don't know it. And I, that was something that I really thought was interesting and intriguing, and something I, I hope changes now that uh, I wrote this book and, and people have an understanding of the match itself and and uh, the importance of it. And I, I think there's a, a, a history to reframe. I, you know, I'm sort mm. of writing a new paradigm for this contest, and
0: yeah. you know, I, I I think I did a good job of showing that. I say so what would you say is a, is a comparison maybe people could to to help grasp the idea what would be a modern equivalent if you booked take pro wrestling take boxing or mma is, is there an equivalent i had a couple of ideas but i want to see what, what is, are your ideas you come up I'm with curious. john cena versus manny pacquiao okay if people I, I think those two those two names certainly are big enough on a global scale um both of them are bigger, I'd say, than uh, Inoki was outside of Japan, respectively speaking, or Conor McGregor versus Manny. Uh, or, I'm sorry, um, Floyd Mayweather. Sure. Both of which are matches. That obviously, are never going to happen. Right. Let's knock on wood. They never happen. Anyway. <laughs> well, are
1: you talking about those like in an MMA mixed style contest or like a boxing contest? Well, the legacy of Ali versus Inoki, sure. so that people you don't have to separate it that much. Brock Lesnar went from mm-hmm. WWE and went to the UFC and became heavyweight champion. They signed a guy like CM Punk. In Japan, we point. know Kazushi Sakuraba. Who, if yeah. you're look, if you're listening to this and you're a, a mixed martial arts fan, you know who Kazushi Sakuraba is. Yeah. He comes directly out of that wrestling lineage. He was a catch wrestler, mm-hmm. and it was a pro wrestler, and he had great success in the MMA world. Mm-hmm. the The ties that bind pro wrestling and combat sports, especially the kinds. That have grappling involved in them, like MMA, mm-hmm. are numerous. I mean, you can't. It, it, there's no question about it. Yeah. Um, Ronda Rousey, uh, yeah. she was the last WrestleMania. I mean, these true. these worlds are always mixing, and more than ever now. I mean, we see yeah. you now UFC 200 approaching, and the UFC and the WWE agreeing to let Brock Lesnar participate again.
0: I'll do you one better yeah. than that: Floyd Mayweather versus the Big Show. Sure, WrestleMania. That it occurred sure. to me that happened. What's funny though is that nobody remembers that that match happened. And again, well, Floyd at the peak of his career, yeah. not like he ever really fell off. I mean, he's still undefeated. Uh, Big show. Yeah. Being... You're, you're much more of a pro wrestling guy than I am. I got to say, like, I'm at a certain that's point. next thing I'm going to steam yeah. you on. <laughs> well,
1: that's fine. I mean, a lot of people have asked me, why did you write this book? There's so much pro wrestling in it. You don't really like pro wrestling. Mm-hmm. And first of all, as a journalist, you can write about things that you're not interested in. You can find a lot of value. And I did that. I was willing to jump into it because I thought mm-hmm. that ali is so compelling and i've been around antonio noki and i've been to japan i mean my genesis for writing this book was i went to a a souvenir shop near the tokyo dome when i went to pride Mm -hmm. Uh, pride fighting championship was the biggest japanese fighting organization which was built directly out of this contest yes and i saw a match i saw a poster of the match and i was like what's what's that Mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali against Antonio Inoki, and then I did a little research, and this was this think- was ten years ago, twelve years ago, and at the time I was like, I'm I might write, but I could write a book about this. And, at the time, did yeah. you not know about the match, or had you heard of it? I had a passing, passing, uh, awareness of it. Very mm-hmm. limited. Um, but you know, seeing the poster, the thing that really drew me to the poster was that it was a closed circuit poster for an event out in Riverside, California and oh. to see an event poster for Riverside, California in a shop in Tokyo. I was like, Oh my God, I'd have to have this. It's Touché. the only souvenir, it's the only souvenir I ever brought back from Japan on mm-hmm. all my trips 12 times. It's the only thing I brought back and uh, it's hanging in my office right now. So, you know, I, I really felt a connection to this contest and having covered mixed martial arts for 16 years. Mm -hmm. Um, I I was always dismissive of the pro wrestling side of it. It was, I think, this is a sport. I want to see who the best fighters are. I don't give a damn about the pro wrestling. Mm -hmm. But now I have a much better appreciation for what pro wrestling is Mm -hmm. and where it came from and the relevance that it has to combat sports today. And I think because of that, I have a much better understanding of of how the sport functions, where it's going, where it's been. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought I knew a lot. I mean, I've been around the sport for a long time. I've ridden for a lot of places. You know, Mm -hmm. people consider me a pioneer of MMA journalism. And yet I learned so much in this book in the process
0: of writing the book. So I'm really grateful that I did it. So do you like AJ Styles or John Cena better then? Who's that? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, Goals, fears, when you set out to, to write this book... You're jumping into a world that, that you don't know and l- maybe a little bit of resentment. The well, or- fight world I knew very well, right? right. So I felt very the comfortable. Half, yeah. The other half of the world. Um, what were your thoughts going into that? Yeah. Well, look. And this is your first
1: book as well, Mike. This is my first me. book. Um, took a lot of time and probably too long for me to write my first book. Uh, I was... I mean, admittedly, it was, felt daunting. I was, you know, a scary idea. Mm-hmm. I'm on the beat. I'm writing regularly. I was like, where do I fit in time to write a book? So the circumstances worked out where I had the time, and I was like, now is the moment for me to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, this felt like the right story for my first book. And um, I, think, I think it is. I mean, look, you talk about trepidation, right? So the greatest writers in the world have written about Muhammad Ali, mm-hmm. and they've written some of the most amazing works. And it's like, well, where... They have now. Well, All right, I, pre- I, you know. um, <laughs> I stand by that, though. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, you know, it's like, how do I fit into that? And do am I going to add something new to Ali's legacy? Mm-hmm. Um, is there a piece of uh, Ali's life and history that people don't know that I could expand on? And I think I did that with this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people know him for his brashness and his persona. Mm-hmm. I write about two Alis in this book, Okay pre Sonny Liston, before he won the championship. True. Yep. And then I write about after the thrill in Manila. So mm-hmm. from end of 1975 on through the end of his career, his demise, mm-hmm. and sort of his physical failings and things like that. Right. Um, and I thought that was important for me because there had been, obviously, everything he did between those two points, his championship reign, his social justice, his uh, you know not going to Vietnam, his standing up to the U.S. government, his winning against the Supreme Court... Everything like that had been so documented and so brilliantly put out by the most amazing writers during that time period. I was like, what can I contribute to that? Nothing. Mm -hmm. People know that story. Where can I contribute where people may not know? And, you know, I think he's got a legacy in the martial arts world that people were unaware of. And I also think that people had some idea that, you know, he he had an affinity for pro wrestlers. People know that he loved Gorgeous George, who Mm is a very famous Los Angeles based pro wrestler for much of his career. And I was classy like, "Classy Freddie Blassie." Of as course, well. Classy Freddie Blassie, who went with Ali to Tokyo for that contest. And I was like, "How, how, how can I dig into that? How can I understand that better about Ali's life?" Right. Mm-hmm. And I did that. I found that. He fought in Los Angeles three times in 1962. Mm-hmm. He was around Gorgeous George. He was around Freddie Blassie. These people had a major impact on him. He became the Louisville Lip during that period. You know, he became sort of this, this brash persona during that period, I really believe. A very famous uh, fight world person, Eileen Eaton. Mm-hmm. Eileen Eaton ran the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles. There's a story, and there's competing stories. Everybody wants a piece of Ali, right? They all want to say that they had sure. this interaction with Ali. But the story goes with Ali Eaton. she had a button, and it said, "I'm the greatest." And she said, "Muhammad." Well, he wasn't; he was Cassius Clay then. Okay. She said, "Cassius, you, you got to wear this button." And, and as the story goes, he says, "Well, I mean, I, you know, I can't, I can't wear that button. I mean, I'm not, you know, he was, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I, like, I can't do that." <laughs> and if you believe the story, she said, "Put it on, whether people, people believe you or not." You sell that, you believe that, they're going to want to watch you fight. They're right. going to want to watch you win, or they're going to want to watch you lose. And he was around those characters, and they had a major impact on who he was in terms of his showmanship and everything else. And so there's a lot of things in the book. It's a, con- it's a story about this particular match, mm-hmm. but it's a story about how Ali arrived at this particular match, why he was interested in doing this. He mm-hmm. really was the driving factor for this. He was approached, the
0: money was big, but he wanted to do it, was the key part of it. hmm Chapter 5, you give uh, a lot of pages to... The Olympic Auditorium, which yeah. Eileen Eaton ran, mm-hmm. uh, Main Street Gym, mm-hmm. downtown LA, not far from uh, where you are these yeah, days.
1: Right? Yeah, well, I'm LA born and raised, and mm-hmm. I live in downtown LA, so it, it was a it was a nice journey for me to go around and see these places. You know, Olympic Auditorium still exists; it's, it's yeah. a Korean church now, but it's the building is still there. You can sort of walk around it and feel the history, and mm-hmm. sort of see these characters. And um, there's yeah. no no doubt about it. the history of combat sports in Los Angeles is really big, yeah. and in downtown LA especially. So
0: that's something. Um, um, I'll, I'll take a minute to say, guys, there's something special about cities, their history. I'm a guy from upstate New York, didn't really have much uh, relationship to history I would read about these things. But having come to L.A. Um, and going to places like the Olympic Auditorium, Auditorium and knowing where it is, or um, I, I think the same thing about uh, the comedy story in Hollywood. Of you course. Know, you walk through those halls. It's hallowed halls, those grounds. If you appreciate the art that happened there there's something really special just about taking it in. And for for you, you know, like you said, to be able to walk around downtown LA and know that these things that are so admired and revered in the history that we love, uh, You're there, just skipping a jump. Fascinating.
1: Yeah, it was great to write about these stories in these places. I mean, unfortunately, the Main Street Gym, which, if you've seen Rocky One and Mm Two, the inside of Rocky's gym is the Main Street Gym. Literally, they filmed it there. Um, The character Mick, his trainer, is based on Mm -hmm. the guy who ran the gym, Howie Steindler. You know, unfortunately, it's a parking lot now. So, Hmm. you know, we we have these places that at the time they may not feel important. But there's important things happening there. And with right. some distance, you can recognize that. And I feel that's the case with the match. I feel that's the case with a lot of the things I wrote about in the book. Uh, I've gotten a lot of questions like, how do you get almost 300 pages on Ali and Oki? It was terrible. I was like, well,
0: <laughs> I was like, there's a lot more to the book than that. Yeah, yeah. You graciously, no. you only uh, spend a little bit of time on the match itself. Well, I read <laughs> I, it's
1: one full chapter. Each chapter, actually, I call a round. There's 15 rounds in the book. That was a question. Yeah. Was that an homage to uh, a conscious homage? Yes, I did that part on purpose I thought it'd be cool and I you know I when I put the book proposal together and had this idea for it I, I envisioned it as 15 chapters mm-hmm. sort of one of my favorite books is Jane Levy's uh, biography about Sandy Koufax and, okay. and she has the way that she mapped her book out is basically like a nine inning book hmm. and I, that always stuck with me and I, I felt like there was a chance to have some fun with that you know mm-hmm. graphically it could be some fun and you know the the round idea just sort of came to me it's like well there's 15 chapters maybe just make it 15 rounds the match itself went 15 rounds mm-hmm. that's how long boxing championship contests were at the time so i
0: thought i thought i had some fun with it you yeah. yeah absolutely um i want to go back we we know who ali is mm-hmm. there's a historical perspective for people that don't know inoki Help help us understand why was Inoki so big in Japan? He, that's my my gist from from studying him and knowing him prior to this, is that he, he's this incredible, like you said, like a cultural icon in Japan, most famous man even to this day. Mm-hmm. This was forty years ago, mm-hmm. by the way, guys. To the week, this week that we're taping this show, forty year anniversary of this match. Um, so help us understand why was this. For lack of a better phrase, Superman versus Batman—the combat sports equivalent. What was Inoki in Japan? Sure,
1: um, Inoki was a disciple of the father of Japanese pro wrestling, this man named Ricky Dozan, mm-hmm. who has his own unique history. He created Japanese pro wrestling after World War II. He was a sumo wrestler. Um, He—I mean, I really get into his story in the book, um, and you know, he—there he, was no such thing as Western-style pro wrestling in Japan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Post-World War II, you had GIs come in, you had the, you know, the, a lot of these wrestling tours come in to entertain the troops, mm-hmm. and he encountered some American pro wrestlers, and they felt like Ricky Dozan was somebody that they could build up, they mm-hmm. could teach, he could bring this kind of wrestling to Japan, and the Japanese people at the end of World War II needed heroes. Mm, yeah. They needed important people who could represent the Japanese strength and they could identify with, and for purposes of, like, really sort of, who were harmless. I mean, it's not like you're talking about a political figure who's riling up a population who's going to make it difficult for the generals uh, of the Allied forces to control the population. This is pro-wrestling. This is entertainment. So, you know, Ricky Dozan really became an important figure. They needed a superhero. They needed a superhero, and he was that guy, okay? So he came along at a time where they needed that, that was the time where television came online. Panasonic started becoming appearing in homes mm-hmm. across Japan. Pro wrestling uh, was always pro wrestling and boxing were two entertainment. Um, aspects to entertainment I didn't want to call it sport because pro wrestling is not a sport but to sport or pseudo like sports that worked perfectly on television you Mm need a limited amount of cameras it didn't cost a lot to produce so pro wrestling was perfect for television and Ricky Dozan represented an icon to the people Mm -hmm. he uh, understood what it was like to do western style pro wrestling the Japanese people had never seen anything like this Mm -hmm. Uh, his legacy grew immensely I mean you talk about he's got the highest rated broadcast in Japanese history several of them Mm. Um, people were poured out on the streets to watch his matches and one of the things he did was he went on a wrestling tour that brought him to Brazil and it just so happened that this young Japanese um, immigrant Antonio Noki had, again it's pro wrestling so Sometimes the histories are really cloudy and and it's tough to get to the real truth. Okay, touch on that topic so, in just a minute. Most people had no idea that Ricky Dozan was in fact from North Korea. Mm-hmm. He was found by a sumo scout in North Korea. They invented a whole history of his life. They made him say he's Japanese and he came from Japan and the whole thing. There are people who also believe in Antonio Noki came from korea or north korea Hmm. and so you've but this brazil story is the legacy right this is how everybody knows it Mm -hmm. so i write about it in the book and i you know i also i hedge a little bit but the story is that uh enoki and his family left japan um in the 50s went to J- went to brazil he was living and working um pretty you know s- hard stuff we're in the plantations toiling yeah. the fields uh but he was a big strong guy and ricky dozan was doing a tour and got wind of this J- really good japanese athlete right hmm. who was kicking all uh the brazilian kids butts and track and field and everything like that hmm. he went to him He talked to him, he saw him, he said, well, why don't you come back to Japan with me and I'll mentor you. Mm -hmm. And Inoki agreed. And at 17, he became one of Ricky Dozan's mentors. He had three, uh, yeah, protégés, thank you. Uh, Ricky Dozan had three um, protégés, Mm -hmm. uh, and Inoki was, you know, he was, the thing about Inoki and the thing that stands about him culturally is that... He is—he represents Japan in a lot of ways, but in a lot of ways he's not Japanese at all. He—he hmm. he will break the lines. He will—he's subversive. He will um, really cause issues and troubles. And he'll—you he'll, know—he is a man who has a force of will, which is why I think that him and Muhammad Ali really connected the way they did later in life. But um, you know, Anoki became once Ricky Dozan died, and he died in 1963. Uh, he was stabbed by a yakuza man and killed. And there's a, there's a whole history of that. It's all in the book. Um, Inoki really sort of took up the mantle of pro wrestling. Yeah. Uh, and another man named Giant Baba, who was a, a former baseball player and um, an athlete, and he be, he became sort yeah. of one of the big stars. Him and Inoki were battling.
0: They were the big powers. They were the big powers in, in, in- Japanese pro wrestling.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and Inoki, for him, he was so ambitious. And he imagined himself transcending past whatever he was doing in the moment. It wasn't good enough to just be one of the two big powers in pro wrestling. He had to be the power. Mm-hmm. It wasn't big enough to be the power in Japan. In Japanese pro wrestling. He had to branch out to larger Asia. It wasn't big enough to be uh, just a, a force in Asia. He wanted to be known worldwide and in North America, and that was the driving force for him to bring Muhammad Ali over and challenge mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali. And because he wanted to be known globally, uh, and that was really the main motivation for him in this contest.
0: This was his uh, first step into uh, combat sports. No, because
1: so, he had he had one or two matches before. Okay, um, and, and here's the thing: it's like he has a record over like twenty three, twenty four mixed bouts. Mm-hmm. Most of them are worked, which is a pro wrestling term for scripted matches, right? Mm -hmm. Some of them are real. This contest ended up being real. Uh, Ali, the initial plan was for him Mm -hmm. to take a fall, and Ali takes a fall for no man, right? So that was the idea. And at a certain point, you got to understand, I didn't know much about pro wrestling, right? Mm -hmm. And and I didn't understand why a guy like Muhammad Ali would take on someone like Antonio Noki and why... Uh, he wasn't sure what the risk fa- factors were. Mm-hmm. The reality is that throughout pro wrestling, guys like Ed Strangler Lewis and so on, they could really fight. Mm-hmm. They could. Re- they were pro wrestlers, but not like the showmen we see today. They could really fight. They shooters, were like in the shooters. Were they were like in the Brock Lesnar mode. Okay. Yes. These were legitimate fighters, not like a Gorgeous George, who was not much of a fighter. He was a showman, a persona, right? right? So, uh, Noki represented that side of pro wrestling, and. The fact was, when you stepped in the ring with one of those guys, you were never quite sure <laughs> was it going to be a pro wrestling match or was he going to try and hurt you? Yeah. And so Ali and his handlers didn't want to take the risk that, okay, we agreed to a pro wrestling match. It doesn't quite work out. Maybe he comes in, he, he's trying to make a name for himself and he takes you down and breaks your arm. So they had to prepare and, and treat it like a real fight. And uh, Ali, um, you know, he stepped up to that, but Enoki had several along the way. And in fact, in 1976, um, they called this a mixed martial arts fight. Really? Yeah, it's in the book, Jay.
0: Well, I know it was in the book, <laughs> but I'm selling that yeah. part of it. I wanted to ask you, yeah. They uh, call this somewhere Sports in the Arts, 200s. The, the, the McMahon family. Uh, they had a big role, as we talked about earlier. That's another part we haven't touched on. The yeah. McMahon family no. involvement in yeah, this yeah. specific match.
1: There's so many people in the book who, who do have their own books and, and multiple times over. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the characters and people involved in this, they were fun to write about. At certain points, I was like, I've got to stop. Here because I got to go here, um, you know. It's like I couldn't make the book too long, and you didn't want right. to cover territory that had already been covered a lot. So I was trying to unearth new things about people who are well known and had a reputation already, and you know that was that was interesting, especially as I said in the pro wrestling world because it's a very cloistered space, right? There's not. Um, there's not a lot of really digging to be had. It's, it's a difficult thing to really get inside and have people, you know, tell you the truth. It's happened before. There's been people who've blown the whistle on the pro wrestling business. Mm-hmm. I try as best I can to take their accounts and know, you know what the business actually is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a great guy who was a WWE writer in the early 2000s, Dan Madigan, who yeah. I quote in the book. He gives me great stories about the, the, what the WWE folks think about this match modern day. And mm-hmm. they're thinking behind the scenes. And so, you know, I, I did as best as I could there. Um, um, I'd bet you twenty
0: bucks that some of the WWE talent doesn't know about this match. Well, per se. well,
1: I hope they buy the book and find out.
0: True, indeed. Yeah. Um, to that end, I was going to say you want to uh, stir the pot a little bit here. Mixed martial arts doesn't the, the if memory serves correct publicly the, uh, um, the the term goes back to I think Jeff Blacknick, correct? <laughs> Right, he was the one that
1: started using it. He was Jeff Blatnick was the rules director for the UFC mm-hmm. uh, back when the UFC was, you know, sort of really, really str- world
0: class wrestler prior to that.
1: Right. You know, he was an Olympic. I mean, he yeah. was an Olympic champion for the U.S. He mm-hmm. won a Greco Roman uh, gold medal in uh, mm-hmm. the Olympic Games in 1984. So Jeff Blatnick was one of the nicest guys I've ever met in my life. Yeah, and a really sort of a genuine person. And um, he passed away. Uh, I think it was last year, and mm-hmm. um, we we all miss him. But his legacy is important. He he was one of the driving forces. Both behind getting modern mixed martial arts rules passed in state uh, states across the country, right? Mm-hmm. So these regulations and these rules that govern mixed martial arts today, right. a large part is owed to Jeff Blatnick and he called the sport mixed martial arts, which mm-hmm. was... Sanitizing it from the no holds bard moniker that people were using then or you know, valetudo, which is a Brazilian phrase. Mm-hmm. Sport had really grown to a point where they felt they needed a sanction it and Jeff had a lot to do that. But the mixed martial arts term, and I didn't realize this, was used in, in 1976 by the McMahon family hmm. in conjunction with this contest. Okay. So, you know, I, I think the the real sort of crowning of that name, they they deserve that. Um, it's pretty amazing that they would have used those terms, but literally that's what it was. Mm-hmm. It was martial arts coming together and you're mixing yeah. styles so it made perfect sense as a, as a name for what they were trying to do
0: i like the term mixed match I, i've heard I read it obviously read it here but when we're talking about uh ali and noki or um when um gosh who am i thinking of J- jack dempsey and strangler lewis uh when that hypothetically was you know people were trying to make that happen or of course judo Jean labelle and milo savage the of fact course. that it was a mixed match um, and this is what's fascinating, again, to tie into the, history, the MMA history that we're talking about, is um, style versus style, whereas now MMA itself... Is its own sport. Is its own sport, yeah, its completely. own role set, completely. Yeah. Um, let's go back then, uh, also, Vince McMahon, we mm-hmm. haven't talked about. Senior and junior, mm-hmm. both of them were involved with this match. Yeah. Who knew? Who knows now? Well, we know. But uh, I, again, there's a generation of fans now, even MMA and, and pro wrestling fans, that don't realize the McMahon family hands were touching this match. Right. So, I mean, if you look at the sub headline of the book, you know, it's it's the uh, right here. Read it out for us. You know, the forgotten fight that inspired mixed martial arts and launched sports entertainment. Right. So, okay. sports
1: entertainment is pro wrestling as we know it today. Yep. Um, and I thought that was a really important component, because as I got to learn more about this topic, I realized just how connected the pro wrestling worlds were with this. Mm-hmm. And you could see the seeds of ambition in Vince McMahon, Vince Kennedy McMahon, right? Junior, as mm-hmm. people would know him. I don't think he likes that very much when people call him Certainly Junior. Certainly doesn't. Yeah, but,
0: you know, whatever. Uh, he he uh, you know, didn't return his calls, Vince. That's why. Go. I mean,
1: I mean no disrespect. It's just to you know, separate father from, from son. Um you could see the seeds of his ambition really coming out in this. One, for him to have uh, pro wrestling connected with Muhammad Ali. Remember, at this time, pro wrestling in the mid-'70s was kind of like this underground, shadowy...
0: It didn't have the best reputation. It was coming out of a period where... You well, know- it, was, it was in a... a- a, I was to say a lull. I mean, in the yeah. 50s and 60s, it was a household thing. Right? It was,
1: and then there were scandals associated with it. I mean, for mm-hmm. a lot of people for a long time thought it was real, and then they realized mm-hmm. it wasn't, and there were scandals associated with that, gambling scandals and all sorts of things. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the pro wrestling business, like the combat sports business, has always yeah. uh, been... Um, Ebbs and flows? Sure, but also been replete with shadowy characters, let's oh, say. Yeah. You know, people who um, love these, these kinds of... Uh, you know there's something about the fight space and the combat sports space and pro wrestling that mm-hmm. it does draw a certain kind of carnival barker right
0: sure um, it's it's a it's spectacle
1: yeah and look i, I quote ferdy pacheco who's all these uh, longtime physician mm-hmm. um people know him very well yeah um he said that ali had the blood of a con man and so of course mm. of course he was drawn to pro wrestling because pro wrestling is a con mm-hmm. so you know that it all made sense that way, and for McMahon, who whose family at the time was running the WWF, they were dominating the northeast of the US. Mm-hmm. You know, pro wrestling was fractured. You had different people in different parts of the country running, and it. it was a territory structure. Well, you know, Junior for uh, had had this idea of well, why can't we just have the whole thing? Right. What very Enoki of him, right? Right. His dad didn't want that. His dad was uh, really sort of you know stick to it this is the pro wrestling world this is what we have we have our little structure we're doing great we own madison square garden we're doing wonderful things we're promoting these big events at chase stadium you know um and vince jr wanted vince, to rock the boat vince kennedy mcmahon uh, once he got control of the wwf at the time i think they that he was the one that transitioned it to that name mm-hmm. um had much bigger plans in, in his mind so for him to be able to participate and associate pro wrestling with Muhammad Ali was really important. He saw that, you know, what could happen when you bring the world to pro wrestling, the eyeballs on pro wrestling. He was a showman. He is a showman. And of course, you know, he tried some other things with Bob Aram. He did that Snake River jump that was a big failure. Evel yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That was also a closed circuit event, a, a, another huge failure. He hmm. was not above putting his neck on the line to try things. Uh, I talked to, again, I mentioned Dan Madigan. I mean, the, the insight he has into McMahon and McMahon's thinking in the book, I think, is really interesting. And mm. I learned a lot about, you know, how their family operated and w- what his thinking was. And um, obviously, really smart guy. and mm-hmm. But his ambition uh, was the thing that drove him. And this contest was, uh, I think, key to that. And the timing really allowed him to see a larger picture.
0: Would you say that the connection with McMahon was more through Ali or Inoki? Because I know that Inoki did wrestle for the WWF in the 70s or early 80s. Well,
1: they created a a, a world martial arts title for Inoki. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, you know, he was representing pro wrestling in these mixed style matches, right? Mm -hmm. See, Inoki's whole thing was that... Those were the works... Mixed-style matches that were actually works, correct? Most of them were works. The thing, some, some of them, I think, were were shoots. It's tough to... There was one against this guy, Willie Williams, who's American, mm-hmm. uh, Kyokushin Karate. Uh, if you watch it, it was like, there's no way that this is a pro wrestling match. These guys were going at it, but it ends. They fall out of the ring. It gets really vicious. Hmm. Um, was this under the WWF? It wasn't under the WWF, but Ali, uh, excuse me, Inoki had the belt. He was known for having the belt, okay. and he was sort of defending that belt. His whole idea was that Pro wrestling is a legitimate fighting style, but when we're putting on a show, we're not actually fighting. But if I wanted to, I could kick your butt. Right. That was his whole thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's called strong style, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of came from this lineage, this pro wrestling history that, you know, the the catch wrestling, Mm -hmm. Ed Strangler Lewis, leading these people like Carl Gotch, who was instrumental in bringing, sort of bridging the gap between really stiff style really hard pro wrestling that could have been a real fight it might have been a real fight Mm -hmm. to you know bridging the gap to what we see today with the big showmanship and jumping off ladders and all sorts of different stuff Mm -hmm. um you know these these characters uh you know you can sort of trace the whole thing through through them and and this contest and Mm -hmm. you know it was it was enoki responding to a quote from ali Mm -hmm. Ali in 1975 uh, made a famous quote saying, is there, and these are his words, is there no oriental man who can challenge me? And he was talking in a martial arts context. Mm-hmm. He wasn't talking in a box- boxing contest. That message was brought back to Japan and Inoki said, well, hey, wow, I can do that. And so Inoki basically came and him and his partners came up with the money. Mm-hmm. They approached um, uh, Ali's people. Bob Arum at the time was one of the rep- promoters representing him arum then took it to mcmahon and said hey how do we make money with this in the u.s mm-hmm. uh, help us with closed circuit the pro wrestling business saw a big opportunity
0: here mm-hmm. it all came together for this night right um the match itself um we we should definitely give some time to that because i think a lot of people that obviously don't know the story won't know the the match itself the match has a certain legacy in, in my words in in the flop that it uh, it was at the time um judo Jean labelle who was the uh, the referee mm-hmm. for it and who was uh, also somewhat of a conduit between the world of uh, boxing and ali oh no question he and, was the first real m- mixed martial artist as yeah. far as i'm concerned and um, he,
1: he met ali in 1962 in la he was he was mm-hmm. eileen eden's son by the way Jean right. labelle so i mean it was amazing that that guy would end up the referee
0: for this contest judo Jean labelle guys i was thinking about on the way over here uh if you don't know the name already it's worth looking up Think the Yogi Berra of combat sports. That's Judo Jean. Charming old man now that has just the most uh, uh, silliest, but but also poignant uh, lines, one liners. But one in particular he said that's in the book, both of them did the same amount of damage, which is nothing. Yeah. Um, he, he would deliver it much better than I would. But so this match 15. I, d- I disagree
1: with him on that, by the way. Really? Yeah.
0: Okay. 15 rounds, uh, three minutes each, three 15s. Um, the rules were, in, in a nutshell, uh, pitch the rules, and then let's talk about what, what ended up happening in the match. How, uh, how it affected the match. In the, in, the, in a nutshell,
1: they were a giant mess.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, because you had a lot of competing interests. You had people who were trying to protect Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. Uh, this wasn't a pro wrestling match, and they realized that this guy Inoki really wanted to and was capable of hurting Muhammad Ali, so they were trying to protect him as best as they could.
0: Mm-hmm. The rules were negotiated all during fight week, up up until the end. I was going to say yeah. the bout agreement was signed within the week. Yeah, that's something that happens on my shows, man. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, that's that's an amateur bout. That's not something that was. That, that's not a global match that that has pay per view contracts. I'm yeah. sorry, uh, closed circuit um, is announced months ahead. Um, that you build up internationally, I find that fascinating.
1: The whole thing. I mean, Enoki I, I, was complaining uh, tirelessly about the rules. He, you know, <laughs> he's like, "My hands are tied; I can't do anything." So, literally, the, the, you know, people talk about this as like a, a farce and a joke. The rules uh, were a big reason why. First of all, most people had no frame of reference for it. No, right. no one had really seen anything like this, at least you know, on a world stage, right? That it happened, but you know. Uh, a televised fight from Salt Lake City is different than Muhammad Ali participating in something. Mm-hmm. So most people didn't really know what to make of it. The rules weren't explained very well. Um, the Ali folks were really just trying to preserve Ali. He had a fight coming up in September against Ken Norton mm-hmm. that was already signed and ready. So,
0: And this, by the way, we should establish, I don't think we've sp- spoken about it, uh, June 26, 1976.
1: Right, so eight months after the thrill in Manila, which was, I mean, just a torturous fight for Ali. Mm-hmm. He had three boxing bouts between that and and this uh, contest with Inoki, he was constantly busy. This is so. This is the most famous time during Ali's career.
0: He's the most famous man on the planet. And he had two boxing matches between the announcement of this Inoki fight. And the fight itself, correct? Yeah, um, the announcement
1: was in March uh, uh-huh. at the Plaza in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was an April
0: and May matchup. Uh, yeah, match, and he, he looked
1: terrible in those contests. He was really bored and listless. And this was, he, you know, he was getting fat. He always liked to fight around 220 pounds. He was mm-hmm. approaching more 230 pounds. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the the motivation for him in the boxing side, I think he was getting bored with boxing mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. You know, he put away Joe Frazier. He put away George Foreman. He was looking for a new challenge, and that's how he framed this contest. He was on The Tonight Show on June 14th mm-hmm. um, and talked about this and talked about what it, why it mattered to him and what the real risks were. Mm-hmm. And he, he looked in the camera and he, he said, "This is This is real. This is not a fraud. That I'm going to go fight a wrestler and he might break my arm.
0: And at that point, ironically enough, was it still planned to be at work? No, it wasn't. They were negotiating. They were negotiating rules. rules. Okay. The, the The idea
1: of having it at work kind of washed up in March. Okay. You know, it, it kind of did. Ali hoped, and I think Freddie, classy Freddie Blassie, who was part of his entourage, kind of held out hope that possibly it would be you know, when they arrive in uh, Tokyo at the airport. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see that because of the, some of the language they use. The Finnish... Like this is not so far after World War II and Pearl Harbor and so the mm. idea was that the sneaky Japanese were going to come get Muhammad Ali and so they get off the plane and they start invoking Pearl Harbor and they start talking about these things the finish was so supposed to be that Ali gets blindsided and put away and he doesn't see it coming you know, by, by somebody else somebody jumping in the ring no by, by Enoki oh, okay. so um, you know that there was a lot of those things still at play, and and that led to the confusion. The boxing press was constantly writing, "Is this real or fake?" Mm-hmm. Uh, this, um, this I think it was a Saturday. Ali did an impromptu press conference and said, "You press guys, you got to understand this is real." You know, he he defended the contest vigorously. Mm-hmm. So, th- no one really knew what the rules were. Gene Lebel, who who's the referee, told me is like, "I didn't really know what the rules were." <laughs> you know, so again, guys, that's something Gene LaBelle would say. Yeah, of course, yeah,
0: that's, that's Gene. <laughs> um,
1: you know, in. It was interesting. The one thing that stood out was that Inoki could kick, and he could kick wearing wrestling shoes, mm-hmm. wrestling boots, which mm-hmm. you don't want to get kicked with. Right. And um, But he couldn't stand up and do it.
0: So he that, couldn't kick standing he up. He could
1: not kick standing up. But he could kick... if 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 he was touching some part of the canvas. Essentially grounded. Yeah. If a knee or a hand was touching, then he could okay. kick. So that basically... Was the impetus for what he did in the match? I mean, mm-hmm. he landed over hundred leg kicks on Ali. Ali's leg Jeez. by the middle of the fight was blown up almost mm-hmm. half, you know, almost by twice. Yeah. Um, the the uh, the real impact and why I disagree with Jean LaBelle in terms of damage. Mm-hmm. We know now, forty years later, watching mixed martial arts, that leg kicks will finish fights. Uh, those are no joke. Those are no joke. If you've ever been kicked with in the leg on a good Muay Thai kick with a yep. shin and you're still standing, you're tough. You give a and chapter you, to that as well. Yeah. So I really try and explain what Ali was experiencing, the impact of it. Look, whether it was the fact that he fought Joe Frazier and that was a really tough fight and he got bored, or the decline of all the years of him in the, in, in the ring, okay. or the fact that he finally got it, the one thing that he relied on the most throughout his career for his defense, his legs, were finally taken from him in this contest. He never knocked anyone down again. Hmm. Muhammad Ali never knocked anyone down again. He basically struggled the rest of his career. Most people didn't think that he beat Ken Norton after this contest. Mm-hmm. He really was damaged in this contest. He went to Korea three days after the bout, did a tour uh, like with USO and troops, and mm-hmm. he was with uh, this famous Taekwondo man named Jun Ri, who brought Taekwondo to America. Mm-hmm. And then he traveled home to the states. And as soon as he got on the flight home to the states, he talked to one of his closest advisors, Gene Kilroy, mm-hmm. who was great for me in the book. He, he, he was really descriptive and had a lot of great stories. Mm-hmm. He said, I'm, "My leg—I'm—I'm I'm suffering. I'm, this leg is my leg is really bad." The second they got off the, the plane, they went to a uh, hospital in Santa Monica, California. And he was in the hospital for four days. He was on blood thinners. They were worried about blood clots. Ferdy Pacheco's like, you should not travel. Blood clots might go up to your heart, to your brain. There was a lot of concern among people around him that he took a lot of damage. There
0: was an issue with that right after the match Mm -hmm. when he ended up, post-fight, a few days later, he goes to Korea and visits, right? Mm -hmm. And there was issues with him the danger of traveling with a sure. potential blood clot yeah, between that was, Japan and Korea.
1: Yeah, that was something that um, Freddie Pacheco in particular said, you know, you should not do this. Right. And the people who are telling you to do this, they don't have your best interest at heart. So um, there was a lot of concern about his health. And he, the thing Pacheco said about Ali was that he was impervious he always bounced back and he always came back strong and, he, and here he was not so sure on that he was really concerned um, I interviewed Andrew Malcolm for the book Andrew mm-hmm. Malcolm was the New York Times bureau chief in Tokyo mm-hmm. and they assigned him to cover the fight um, and he was one of the few people that got access to Ali after the match he went into the locker room mm-hmm it's a great story with that, and I'll, I'll save it for the book. Okay, but um, he's in there, and the thing that he notices about Ali is Ali's on the bench, just writhing in pain, and mm. his and the leg just looked terrible. People described it as just you know raw hamburger. It was ter- you know he really because it's one thing to get kicked with the shin or the top of the foot, and was literally wearing laced up wrestling wrestling boots, boots leather to, to, the, to the middle of the shin. Yeah, so um, you know. Th- that messed him up. It really yeah. messed him up, and um, you know, it,
0: I, I think no question, it took a toll on him. Um, he 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 just didn't have it after that. In a matter of speaking, I mean, the, the match itself ends in a draw, right? A draw. Inoki was deducted three points, but um, yeah. In 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 a matter of speaking, in terms of uh, fighting ability, in some ways, there's an argument to be said that Inoki beat Ali. He did. Yeah. He did. I mean, you know, he. Yes, he he should. He did more damage. Ali did nothing. Ali didn't throw a power punch. He, you know, because he couldn't figure out. I mean, the, what we haven't talk, uh, talked about is the the match itself was fifteen rounds of Inoki on the ground. Throwing, throwing these leg kicks diving from into below. Yeah, yeah, diving yeah. into them, Threat throwing leg kicks. Slides.
1: Yeah, there was a couple moments where they mixed it up. There was one moment in the sixth round where, um, you have to understand, among the rules, and one of the rules that was determined was that anytime Ali touched a rope, if he, if a noki was locked up, that they were separated. Rope bricks. And that's a pro wrestling rule. So mm-hmm. this really was a combination of pro wrestling and boxing coming together, and they didn't know how to structure that. They didn't know how to mm-hmm. make the rules or what that would look like, right? Yeah. So, But one of the things that was really important was Ali knew that if he got tied up, Mm -hmm. All he he had to do was touch the rope And in the 6th round Inoki actually took him down He was underneath Ali Ali was standing above him You could could realize the difference Between a grappling balance and a boxer balance Because as soon as Inoki grabbed Ali's leg Ali just looked like he just flailed to the floor It was one of the reasons people hate this fight Because it made Ali look weak in some ways Mm -hmm. And um, he goes down the ground Inoki gets on top of him He's kind of facing the opposite direction immediately Ali grabs a rope. They were too close. They weren't in the center. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the point deductions was Inoki sort of smashed him with an elbow right in the head. Oops. Um, well, he was, you know, Inoki, uh, he was nice to Ali in some ways. In some ways, yeah. he wasn't. In the 13th round, he had a blatant knee to the groin uh, mm-hmm. to Ali. Ali tried to walk out of the ring. He didn't want to have any more. And Jean LaBelle's mm-hmm. like, Jean LaBelle tells a funny story. He, and, he, you know, he says... I probably shouldn't have said this but um i'm uh, trying to convince ali to come back into the ring he's he ali get back in here i bet on you, you know? <laughs> so you know, he, he's got some sort of these great these great moments um <laughs> that you that, you know you get these stories that people tell about this contest mm-hmm. um you know the book is ali
0: versus anoki but um in in so many ways it's it's much more than that mm-hmm. uh the match itself was a draw the scores i find this fascinating there were 3 judges. Yeah. Judo Jean was one of them and he had uh, was connected with both of them. There was uh, Koichi Endo, is that right? Mm. The name. Scored it 74 to 72 for Ali. He had a wrestling background. He was connected with Ricky Dozan. Uh, Koyo Toyama scored it 72-68 for Inoki. He was a boxer. Mm. So, that, certainly, obviously, guys, no, nothing, uh, nothing sketch about that. I mean, that, that's kind of uh, it's one, one of the, of the, most, where, of the strangest like, of ironies,
1: right? So when people ask, was it a worker or a shoot? Right, uh, the match itself and the competition, what were they, what they were doing to one another? None of it was scripted. Mm-hmm. Anything could happen happen in the ring, and some weird stuff did. Now there's a matter of saving face, mm-hmm. and there's a matter of okay, this is Muhammad Ali. Do we, you know, is it really uh, smart to give? Antonio Inoki decision here, what I think there's a lot of stuff, you know, Hmm. a lot of weighing those factors. And in the end, you know, three points were deducted from Antonio Inoki Mm -hmm. um, and that dictated the outcome in the fight. Mm -hmm. Um, Gene LaBelle remembers two deductions. He couldn't remember the third. He wasn't sure Hmm. what it was. Um, but the fact is that, yeah, the judges saw it differently. And, I, you know, again, what are they asked to see? Even today in modern mixed martial arts, I and mean, we constantly see it, you see the, the don't leave it in the hands of the judges, right? Because right. you never know what judges are going to see. You never know what they're looking for. You never understand exactly how they're scoring it. Mm-hmm. And so it's a difficult thing to know exactly what the motivation was on those scores, why they saw it the way they did. I know that I, when I watched it, and I watched the match about 30 times, hmm. um, to me, Antonio Inoki won the fight. Uh, the point deductions matter but uh yeah. you know it, it, it uh it was interesting that that's that that's how it transpired but those are legitimate people those were people in the pro wrestling and boxing worlds i mean mm-hmm. those are
0: you know the, the, their names were well known were well known they were in the press and people were talking about them they came with their own backgrounds as you do in combat sports but they were uh didn't have any other vested interest than than judging the match right. fair to say right yes for sure um I haven't uh, we haven't done the uh, um I haven't done the calculations on the score but if um if Judogene had not um subtracted that uh, or deducted that one point in the was it eighth you said uh there was a sixth round the 13th round and the eighth round the right? one that he yeah. couldn't remember would yeah. that have changed the scores uh, I suppose it would have, yeah. Okay. All and right. he he was also a box a referee and a judge at the same time, which is a little unique. You don't see that too much anymore. Right, yeah. We'd be remiss in uh, not mentioning Art Davy, of course, creator mm-hmm. of the UFC. Um, the, the, talk about the connection between, because uh, you, you quote him uh, in the book, uh, the connection between Ali versus Inoki as it led to the UFC, and mixed martial arts as we know it.
1: Sure. So the first 10 rounds of the book, right? The first 10 chapters, I really spent a lot of time building up who the characters are, building mm-hmm. the history. So people, once the match takes place in the book, which is round 11, mm-hmm. I, I'm hoping people have a real understanding, a frame of reference for what's going on, who mm-hmm. the characters are, what the stakes are, and everything that led up to it, right? After that, I really get into the aftermath. I really lay out um, what the effects of this was in martial arts people, mm-hmm. the thinking the legacy that it left
0: a whole generation of martial artists were now had this idea of a mixed match planted in them. And we're talking about people in the seventies, eighties and nineties right. Right. leading up to it where it, where it was still the conversation was still style versus style, style never versus thought style. of a universal. Right. Um,
1: I, but I'd start getting into uh, where and how this led to modern mixed martial arts. Right. So in the book, I talk about these people in Pennsylvania in the early eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a, uh, They called it combined fighting. And hmm. for them, they started a league, uh, a league of combined fighting mm-hmm. with where anything goes. It wasn't style versus style. It was man versus man. Hmm. And you bring what you know and I bring what I know and we'll see what happens. Okay. So, you know, that was born in some way out of Ali Inoki. And like Art Davy, who was, you know, really sort of the inspiration and the thought, the man behind uh, the creation of the UFC, um what they didn't want, what Art didn't want, was this style versus style. They didn't want the rules getting in the way of contests. They didn't mm-hmm. want the athletes negotiating rules. They didn't want it because that's where things start falling apart. And that was a hindrance with this one. Sure. And obviously, it had a huge importance and legacy in terms of you know mm-hmm. what this mm-hmm. contest ended up being. So... Um, the inspiration and in what Art took was not a positive one it was a negative one saying I don't want my right. fights to look like this right. uh, and he wasn't the only one to do that so yeah Art certainly uh, was uh, very important in terms of my telling of the story I get into it and in, in sort of towards the end of the book when I really sort to of break down what this match meant in terms of modern mixed martial arts I break it down in, in, as far as Japan goes the mm-hmm. legacy in Japan but also legacy for the UFC and also now where we're at is a global sport for mixed martial arts mm-hmm. um, and the last Thing I get into is Ali and Anoki and their similarities and their friendship. And, um, you know, they are two unique people in the combat sports world. Of course, no one more so than Muhammad Ali, but Antonio Anoki has a legacy there. And they had a a real connection. They became friends. Mm -hmm. Legitimately, they became friends. Uh, Anoki went to Ali's wedding uh, the following year. And in 1998, Ali went to Inoki's retirement match and gave a hmm. statement. And, you know, there there was a real strong connection there. One one more thing on their connection. Before the Gulf War, the mm-hmm. the first Gulf War in 1990, 1991, mm-hmm. um, we all know or people know that Muhammad Ali went to Iraq and negotiated the, the release of 15 American hostages. Mm-hmm. The same week, Antonio Inoki was there and negotiated the release of one hundred Ameri- 100 Japanese families. Wow. They they're bound in a lot of different ways. Anoki people didn't know for 22 years converted to Islam, mm-hmm. um, and so you know there are things that bind them, and it's it's all in the it's all in the book. And um, the match itself, for better or for worse, it really led to something mm-hmm. that I think is uh, an important story. And more than anything, I, I tell the, the the history of combat sports through this one event.
0: Mm-hmm. Last question real quickly. Um, obviously, we lost uh, uh, Muhammad Ali mm-hmm. a, a, just a few weeks before this, June 3rd. Um, any, any thoughts in, in light of, be, between June 3rd and, and now, uh, thoughts on reflections on, on the goat? And uh, has course. it changed your perspective on the book itself? Um,
1: you know, I was, I was definitely affected uh, the Friday night that it was uh, revealed that he lost his life, mm-hmm. um, as many people were around the world. Um, you know, but then I also felt like I have to sell a book. I have to sell a book about this man I don't want to look like I'm profiting off his demise and Mm -hmm. how do I do that Um, you know it took it took a couple days for me to sort of feel like I think I represented him well and I read yeah. about his story well and, um, you know, this is a project I've been working on for a long time mm-hmm. and I owed it to myself to to go out there and sell. But no question, I felt like I lived with Muhammad Ali in some ways for a year. I mean, wow. you know, the people I talked to that were around him, the stories that I you know dug up about, around him, the stuff that I read about him, mm-hmm. uh, I was definitely, uh, he was a part of my life. And uh, I think we all should feel honored that we lived in the age of Muhammad Ali because there's never going to be another person like him.
0: Yeah, absolutely so. He set the benchmark high, and uh, it's it's going to be a long time before we ever get to that Stratos mm-hmm. again. Um, the book itself is called Ali vs. Anoki: The Forgotten Fight That Inspired Mixed Martial Arts and Launched Sports Media. It is recommended reading for any sports enthusiasts and historians. It is a must-have for pro wrestling and MMA fans. If you consider yourself one and you don't have this book, you're a casual fan. And that's okay, but I am judging you. Josh, real quickly, uh, social media. Where can they find you? Just on Twitter, uh,
1: yeah. Y a y underscore y e e. That's my uh, that's my
0: screen name. I'm going to ask you the story behind that one after uh, after the show. Sure. I'm Jay Tan. Jay Tan seven one six all over the internet. This has been Book Circle Online. Thanks for joining us, guys. From managing editor Jason Squamata, executive
1: producers Maria Menounos, Phil Svitek, and Kevin Undergaro, we would like to thank you for tuning in to Book Circle Online. For more discussion, go to BookCircleOnline.com. And if you have comments, questions, or book title suggestions, write us at info at BookCircleOnline.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this is Book Circle Online. BCO. Join the Circle.